0: If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't know the motives. We don't know what's going on in their hearts. We don't know what's going on in their thoughts. And so, you know, it can be easy to hide A hard heart. It can be easy to hide what's going on deep inside of us. And like the Pharisees, we can put on this outward spiritual show. We can try to convince people that we're doing far better than we really are. And this is what these readers really were struggling with. They were challenged with a hard heart. They're thinking about leaving Jesus to go back to Judaism. And the author wants them to be quite aware of the fact that Jesus sees. All that's happening. So in light of that, the author is going to share some important things about the Word of God. And he's also going to share with us some important things about God himself. And the main thing the author is going to want us to know is that God sees everything. He sees our heart and the Word of God is able to impact and discern and convict and change our heart. And ultimately, all those truths should cause us to be willing to deal with our heart to deal with that hard heart that we might have, because the best cure to a hard heart is the Word of God and God Himself. And because that is the cure, the verses we're going to look at this morning, the author is going to share four very important things about God's Word, and he's also going to share with us three very important things about God Himself. And all of these things deal with the fact of how God's Word and God Himself sees and is able to impact our heart. So in these verses we're going to look at this morning, we're going to be challenged with this, challenged with this reality of what God sees and how we should respond to it. And we need to respond the right way, not like the Pharisees trying to pretend we're not struggling with things, trying to hide our our hard heart, but instead to get right with the Lord, to repent of those things and to reveal to Him how we're doing. And we're going to finish this morning with Jaime coming up and he's going to share his testimony and we're just going to get to see an example of what God is able to do in a person's life. And I'm sure we'll all be encouraged by that as well. And so let's start by looking at the four things the author tells us about the Word of God and what it does in our heart and in our life. And verse 12, says this, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The first thing the author reveals to us about the Word of God is that the Word of God is living. For the Word of God is a living Word. The Greek word translated living means to be full of life as opposed to death. So the author is telling us the Word of God is alive. It's not dead. Now, you talk to a lot of people in our world today, especially those who are atheists, and and they just have this concept of this is just a dead book, a a useless book, a, a book that's ancient, a book that has no relevance to life today, and that's their view of it. But we need to understand that view is completely wrong. God's Word is living, and there's not any other book like it. You know, if you go into the largest libraries today, you'll see thousands and thousands of books, but there's only going to be one book if the Bible is there that is living. Only one book that we're going to see can do what the Bible does for a person's life. Now, the word of God is living because it comes from the eternal living God who never dies. And since God is eternal and living and never dies, His Word is also eternal and living and never dies. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. God's Word is living because it comes from a living God who never dies. And it's also living because God is the author of life and His living Word imparts life. Since God's the author of life and He has given us His Word, His Word imparts life to people. And it really imparts life in two different ways. First, it imparts new life to spiritually dead sinners. 1 Peter 1.23 tells us this, For you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. We have been born again. We've been given this spiritual life through the living Word of God. It's the Word of God that declares the gospel message that saves us, that takes us from death into life. And so if you want a spiritually dead sinner to have spiritual life, then guess what? You've got to share with them the Word of God. Because in the Word of God is the one message that will bring salvation, which is the gospel. Philip Newton wrote this. You will miss the breath of the English language if you fail to read Chaucer or Shakespeare. You will miss the probing of human emotion if you fail to read Tennyson or Browning. You will miss the rich insights of history if you fail to read Gibbons or Johnson. But if you fail to read the Bible, if you fail to listen to its words, then you will miss the only truth that can carry you through life and into eternity. It's only the word of God that has the message of life, the message of salvation, the message that this world desperately needs to hear. So God's living word, it imparts new life to spiritually dead sinners. You know, right before World War II, there was this uh, cannibal tribe that a missionary came to and shared the gospel. And this tribe, you know, stopped eating each other and and became Christians. And he gave this tribe a Bible. And uh, during the war, you know, an American soldier came and this tribe encountered this American soldier. And they bring out their, their Bible, this thing that they were just held as so precious. And the American soldier says to this gentleman, we have outgrown that sort of thing. The man smiles back and said, It's a good thing we haven't. If it weren't for this book, you would have been a meal by now. So the first way that God's living word imparts life is it imparts new life to spiritually dead sinners. But the second way that God's word imparts life is it imparts renewed life to spiritually dry saints. You know, for those of us who have been saved for any given time, you've probably gone through a time where it's just dry spiritually. You know, that, that happens to us, and, and in those spiritually dry times, God uses His living Word to renew us and to revive us and to bring us back to that place of bearing spiritual fruit. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Psalm 119. It's all about the Word of God, and, and over and over again, the author talks about the fact that this Word revives him, the word of God renews his life. Here are a couple examples. Psalm 119.25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Psalm 119.50, This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. You know, if you're going through a spiritually dry season in your life right now, the thing that you need the most is the word of God to get into the Word, to study the Word, to allow the Word of God to revive you, to restore you, to help you just bear that spiritual fruit once again in your life. So the first thing that the author tells us about God's Word is it's living. The second thing the author tells us about the Word of God is that it is powerful. For the Word of God is living and powerful. The Greek word here translated powerful means that which is working, active, effective, or powerful. This Greek word is describing activity which produces results or which is effective in causing something to happen or come about. So when the author says, you know, the word of God is powerful, he's revealing that God's word is actively working to cause things to happen and it's doing it through the power of God. You know, the power of God's word is beyond anything else. Psalm 33, 6 tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of His mouth. You know, God created everything through His word. He spoke. Genesis tells us, He said, Let there be light. And there was. When there was nothing, He spoke those things into existence. And that kind of power is unparalleled and unmatched. But His Word is also actively working. It's actively working to cause things to happen through God's power each and every day. You see, the Word of God never just sits still. It never takes a day off. It's always at work in people's lives. Isaiah told us this about the Word of God in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This is one of those wonderful verses that we need to have uh, close to our heart, that God's word does not come back void. You know, sometimes we think, you know, is it worth it sharing it? Is it worth it reading it? Yes, it's always going to do what God desires it to do. It never comes back void. It never doesn't accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. And so when you're studying the Word of God for yourself or when you're sharing it with others, it's going to actively work in you and it's going to actively work in those that you share it with. It's never a waste of time. It always is going to come back in the way that it should. So the first thing the author tells us about the word of God, is living. The second thing is it's powerful. And the third thing is it's piercing. We're told, For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. Now what the author wants us to understand, he gives some examples here, is that God's word is like a sharp two-edged sword that can pierce deep inside of us. It has this ability to penetrate our lives so deeply that it can pierce even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And these illustrations are saying, like, with a physical sword, this two-edged sword, if you were pierced with that, it could literally strike and, and, and uh, divide joints and marrow. But the spiritual sword is far more important because it divides the soul and the spirit it has this ability to penetrate the deepest part of our spiritual be- being to really reveal to us what's truly going on in our soul and our spirit and our heart you know a physical sword it stabs living people with the purpose of making them dead the spiritual sword of god it stabs spiritually dead people with the purpose of making them spiritually alive and it stabs spiritually alive people to cut out sin that ultimately brings spiritual deadness. So this two-edged sword of God, it pierces deeply into the human heart, ultimately to do surgery on us. Steve Lawson wrote this, The Bible is the sharpest weapon of any arsenal in the world. It's sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. It is two-edged. There is no blunt side. Every book in the Bible is razor sharp. Every chapter is razor sharp. Every verse is razor sharp. Every word can cut deeply. There is no a dull verse in the Bible. There's not a blunt chapter in the entire book. And because it's two-edged, it cuts both ways. It both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. It both tears down and builds up. It both convicts and converts It has both bad news and good news. It both saves and it damns. It both heals and it hardens. It both makes alive and it puts to death. The Bible will cut you. If you read it, you study it, it's going to cut you because it's going to reveal sin in your life. And so when you're reading your Bible or you're listening to someone teach the Bible and your conscience is pricked, and there's this, ow! Don't harden your heart to that. God's wanting you to see, here's a problem. Here's something that needs to get rid out of your life. Now, it's important to note the purpose of God's Word in cutting us is to bring healing, not to leave us wounded. God's just not trying to stab us over and over to say, oh, I just want to wound my my sheep, wound my children. No, I want to bring healing. I'm stabbing you to cut out the cancer of sin. Because if that's left in your life, it's going to destroy you. And so I'm cutting you in order to bring healing to your life. Kent Hughes wrote about his conversion experience. And he uses this cutting illustration in his life. And I think it's a great thing to kind of point out what God's Word does. He says this. I was 12 years old when I came under the knife of God's Word. The cuts went deep, deeper than blood. As they cut my soul in gracious surgery... I was cut with the clear understanding that though I was an outward son of the church, I was not a son of God. This left me aware that I was a sinner and outside the spiritual mystery that others in the church shared. The cut hurt and I wanted healing. The other cut the knife brought was the conviction that Jesus Christ was God and that he had died on the cross for my sins. This was a totally new conviction and it throbbed me and was almost sweet, unrequited pain. God's Word had surgically prepared my soul for an ultimate healing operation. What a great example of what God's Word does in a person's life. That it reveals that sin, reveals your need for a Savior, points you to the one that died for your sin on the cross, Jesus Christ, helps you to come to that place of repentance and healing and salvation. So God's Word is powerfully used in our own lives but as believers, we're also told that you know, we are to use the Word of God to impact the lives of others. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're given the spiritual armor of God that we need to put on every day. But there's one piece of armor, our offensive weapon, which is referred to as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if we yield that sword rightly, it can change lives, it can save lives from eternity in hell. You know, Peter's a great person who discovered the difference between the spiritual sword of God's word versus the physical sword that he wielded in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pulled out that physical sword thinking, I'm going to protect Jesus. He goes to chop off this guy's head and misses and only gets his ear, and Jesus rebukes him. But then after the day of Pentecost, Peter, using the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, preaches the gospel, shares an amazing message to a huge crowd of people that were gathered. And it's interesting that after he's done giving that message, notes what the people say. Note what happens in their life and in their heart when the Word of God is proclaimed to them. We're told it in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter used the sword of the Spirit. He preached the word of God. The people who heard it, noticed they were cut to the heart. It went straight to the heart, revealed their sin. It got them to the place where they just cried out, what do we do with our sin? What do we do with this? And notice the response, Repent. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to come to Jesus, ask for His forgiveness, believe in Him. And if you continue reading on there in Acts, we find out that 3,000 people were saved that day. As Peter yields the sword of the Spirit, we see a wonderful example of what it can do to impact and change lives. So the first thing the author tells us about the Word of God, it's living. Second, it's powerful. Third, it's piercing. And fourth, we're told that it is discerning. For the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Greek word translated discerner means to judge, to sift out, to analyze evidence. Now, a judge, if you were to sit before him, he could sift out, he could analyze the, the facts and the evidence that people could see. You know, things that you did if you were on trial, things that you said or things that you didn't do or things that other people did. You know, the judge could see all those outward actions, all those words that were used, and he could place judgment with that information. But you know what? The judge would never know the motive of the heart. He wouldn't know what people were thinking because we can't see that. And so the judge is limited to only the outward stuff that he's able to see. But here we're told, you know what? The word of God is far deeper is far more impactful, can do more than even a judge that we stand before today because it's able to analyze the thoughts and intents of our heart. Gets to see the motives, the intentions, what we're thinking. And not even the wisest of all human judges can do that. God's Word can discern everything that's going on in your life. Charles Spurgeon said this, The Word not only lets you see what your thoughts are, but it criticizes your thoughts. The Word of God says of this thought, it's in vain. Of that thought, it's acceptable. Of this thought, it's selfish. Of that thought, it's Christ-like. It is a judge of the thoughts of men. Now, it's really important for us to recognize the importance of the fact that God's Word sees our heart for what it is. That it discerns our heart for what's truly happening. And the reason why that's so important is because the Bible reveals something about our heart that we need to be aware of. Because a lot of people are led by their heart when they shouldn't be. Because biblically, that's not a wise thing to be led by. Notice what Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You don't want to be led by your heart. Why? It's deceitful. It can deceive even you. It's wicked. Who can know their hearts? Well, there's only one, God. And His Word is something that speaks directly to your heart. And so since our hearts are deceitful, since they can deceive us, we are in desperate need of God's Word to reveal what our heart is really doing, what's really going on in us. Because oftentimes as believers, we want to do what's right We want to follow the Lord. And there are times when we truly are ignorant to some of the sin in our life, truly ignorant to some of the things in our life that shouldn't be there because our heart has even deceived us. And so the Word of God just opens us up. Does that surgery reveals, hey, this is a problem. This needs to be addressed. And sometimes it's a shock, like I didn't even know that was there. I didn't even see that. But God's Word reveals it so that we'll deal with it. David He had a share of sin that he tried to hide from the Lord, but he understood. He understood that God can see everything. Notice what the Word of God did in David's life. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. What a great prayer. What a great thing. Lord, you know what's really going on in me. I want you to examine my heart. I want you to see if there's any wicked way in me because if there is, I want to deal with it. If there is, I want to address it. If there is, I want to get right with you in it. So the fourth thing that the author wants us to know about the Word of God or the four important things is that it's living, it's powerful, it's piercing, it's discerning. And all four of these things enable the Word of God to deal with what's really going on inside your life and inside your heart The Word of God reveals to us our sin. It convicts us of our sin. It shows us our need to deal with our sin and change. It points us to the one who has died for our sin. So those are four important things the author wants us to know about the Word of God. But he also wants us to know three things about God himself. And we see these three things in verse 13. He tells us this. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, the main point of this verse is that God sees everything. And with that in mind, the fact that God sees everything, the author kind of gives us three important points based on this reality that God sees everything. First, since God sees everything, there is no hiding from God. We're told there is no creature hidden from his sight. You know, throughout history, people have foolishly tried to hide from God. But you can't hide from God because he sees everything, that there's no hiding from him. You know, it started back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned. They tried to hide from God, but they couldn't because God saw. He sees everything. He knew what happened. David understood there was no hiding from God when he wrote in Psalm 139, 1-8, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar of off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? As I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Now God just comes out and clearly says it in Jeremiah twenty-three, twenty-four. He says this, Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? The answer is no. (laughs) Nobody can hide from me. I I fill heaven and earth. I see everything. And it's so important for us to recognize that truth. You can't hide from God. You can't hide sin from God. So the first thing the author wants us to see is since God sees everything, there's no hiding from God And the second thing is since God sees everything, there's no covering yourself from God. We're told, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. Now, the Greek word translated naked just means without clothes. And the Greek word translated open means to be laid bare and completely uncovered and exposed. What this is saying is that all things to God are bare naked to his eyes he sees everything god sees past all the coverings that we try to put on now every day we clothe ourselves we cover ourselves before we leave the house we don't go out naked we don't want people to see us naked and usually we're horrified by the thought of being naked in public I'm sure that maybe some of you have had that horrible dream and maybe it was like standing in front of a class or, or being somewhere where you're naked in public and then you wake up from that dream and there's this relief of, oh good, I'm glad that that was just a dream and that wasn't a reality. But you know what? When it comes to God, our bare nakedness, it's not a dream, it is a reality. We are bare naked, completely exposed before God. Now the idea of being laid bare and fully exposed, it goes actually beyond the idea of being just naked. You see, if you look at someone naked, their skin still covers them from being able to see inside of their body. Now, today we have you know amazing medical equipment like X-rays and um, MRIs and CT scans, and you know those machines enable you to see past the skin and see inside the body. And really, that's kind of the idea of being laid bare and fully exposed, that God can even see past the nakedness that you have, past your skin. He can see right inside you. He can see everything that's happening in the innermost depths of your body. And the point the author is trying to make is you can't cover yourself. There's nothing you can do to keep God from seeing what's going on in your life. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, notice the first thing they do. They finally realize, we're naked. And they go and they get fig leaves and they sew them together and they try to cover themselves up. That was a first initial response to sin. They try to hide from God and they try to cover themselves from God, but God saw right through it. And the reality is, you know, not much has changed. When we sin, we, we often try to cover it up. We don't want people to see it. We do all we can to try to hide it. When David committed adultery... He tried to cover it up. He had the husband of Bathsheba, the woman he committed adultery with, the husband's name was Uriah, he had him killed. And he thought, great, now the baby that you know, I'm going to have with Bathsheba, no one's going to know that it's mine because the husband's dead and I've taken her on as wife. And you know what? It worked among the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they didn't know. They thought, oh, what a great king. Here's a woman who lost her husband in battle, and David takes her on as a wife. He's so wonderful. He covered it up, but they didn't see. But you know what? He didn't deceive God. God saw exactly what was going on, and God brought that to David. And David had to suffer the consequences of it. Numbers 32, 23 says something very important for us to remember. Be sure your sin will find you out. Since we can't cover up our sin from God, since he sees everything, we need to realize, hey, it's going to find us out. The God of heaven and earth, he sees it. I can hide it from you or from someone else, but I can't hide it from him. And so it will ultimately be found out. Now, this can be discomforting if you've got something to hide. This message is not a very pleasant one if you're trying to hide sin. Well, God could see it. His word convicts. Yeah, but you know what? If you're willing to come clean, if you're saying, you know what, I don't want to hide anymore, it can be a very comforting truth. So the first thing the author reveals in verse 13 is there's no hiding from God. Second, there's no covering yourself from God. And the third and final thing is we all must give an account of everything in our lives to God. At the end of verse 13, we're told, to whom we must give an account. This Greek word here, translated account, means to give an answer or explanation in reference to judgment. And this is something that we just need to be aware of. When you and I die, we're going to face the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. We're going to have to give an account for our lives. We're going to have to give an answer and an explanation of how we have lived our lives. And it's going to be to the one who's seen everything. You know, we see people today, and we get kind of annoyed that some of them aren't held to the same standard or level in a court of law, and they might be able to deceive a judge that doesn't know everything that's happening. But you know what? We're going to stand before a judge who knows it all, who sees it all, who knows everything, every thought, every action, every word, everything we've ever done. We're going to stand before that judge. And the important thing to understand is how God responds how he responds to our life and the sin that we've committed is all based on whether or not we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. The wonderful news is if you place your faith in Jesus, every sinful thought and action and motive, all that we've ever done, God is going to forgive. Revelation chapter 20 paints this wonderful picture of the fact that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to have book after book after book of all the things that we ever thought that were sinful, of all the things that we ever did that were sinful, of all the things we ever said that were sinful. And that's what we're supposed to be judged by. But then there's another book, the book of life. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their name is written in the book of life. And Jesus says, you know what? You can just get rid of these books. You can get rid of all this record of, of sin because you know what? Jesus paid for that sin and so you're forgiven and you can be with me in heaven. But you know what? If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, then every sinful thought and action and motive of everything you've ever done, all those books that have recorded since the day you were born to now, and the day you die, you will be judged by God for that. You see, God sees everything in our life. We can't hide anything from Him. We are bare naked before Him. We must give an account of our life to Him. And His Word is living. It is powerful. It is piercing. It is discerning. It reveals to us our sin. It convicts us of our sin. It reveals to us the need that we have for a Savior. It points us to a Savior. It encourages us to repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus. So if this morning the Word of God and the Spirit of God are revealing a sin in your life that you haven't been dealing with, that maybe you've been trying to hide or to cover up, Understand, you might be being successful with people in your life, but you're not being successful with God. He sees it. He wants you to deal with it. He wants you to repent of it. And he gives us a wonderful promise if we do. 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if we'll bring it to God, he'll forgive. And he'll cleanse us. That sin stains, that sin makes just problems in our life, and God says, just bring it to me. Quit hiding it, quit covering it. I want to free you. I want to bring victory to your life. So God and His Word have the power to see right through us, to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior. But when someone comes to that point where they discover that they're a sinner, they discover their need for a Savior, and they come to Jesus Christ to meet that need, It's a beautiful testimony of what the word of God and God himself can do in the life of a person. And I just want to finish this morning hearing a wonderful testimony from Jaime. He's just going to share what God has done in his life and encourage us with that. So Jaime, why don't you come on up uh, and share that with us.
1: Well, good morning. Matthew told me I had 60 minutes, so So I'll set my timer for 60 minutes. Um, You know, our testimony is just really the story of how we came to meet Jesus and what Jesus has done since we've trusted in him. And uh, maybe like some of you, I grew up in a religious home, and I think my parents did the best they could to take me to church. Uh, My parents, I think, did the best that they could to try to set up some sort of foundation religiously. But even though I went to church growing up, I can honestly tell you I really had no idea. I really had no understanding about what it meant to be a Christian, how to get to heaven, like what would happen after I died. I really had no idea. And I think that, you know, when I had honest questions, I I would ask my parents and sometimes they would be able to give me some answers. And other times, I think my parents, you know, just they didn't know either. And so, you know, I grew up in this religious home and I didn't have necessarily all the answers that I wanted. And also, at some point, I just really started wanting to follow the things that I was interested in because there was other competing influences you know as I grew older and i I went into high school, um, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and I grew up on the border. and for anyone who grew up on the border, you know, you would spend a lot of time going to Mexico, and uh, you would go and do bad things across the border that were easier to do there. and that's just kind of what I ended up doing throughout high school, crossing the border. We would go you know r- two times or three times a week, my friends and I and and we got ourselves into a lot of trouble. And you know, I came to a place in my life that I decided that I didn't want to feel alone anymore. Because I had felt alone, you know, I may not have ever said it out loud, but I would say a lot of my time in middle school and in high school, I really just felt alone. You know, I felt like I didn't make all the connections that I wish I could have made with people. Um, I, I was quietly, quietly alone you know? And I thought that by doing these things, you know, if we went to these places in Mexico, if we went to bars in Mexico, that maybe I could like fill that loneliness that I experienced and I felt. And you know what? It never really, never really filled that loneliness that I experienced and and I felt. And so I think I went throughout high school just like believing a lot of different things. You know, I didn't really have the the firmest foundation of, like, knowing the Bible. Like, I remember someone had asked me once, you know, if I could name the four Gospels. And I think I said, oh, sure, Uh, Peter, James. And then I kind of, like, trailed off. Those aren't even, like, two of the four. You know, they're just, like, names I had heard, right? So I really had no knowledge. And I remember one day after high school, I I walked home from my school. I remember there was a man standing outside of my high school, and he was passing out these little books about this big. And I didn't know what he was passing out, but I was like, what, free stuff? I want some. You know, so this guy was like passing out some stuff, and who's actually what's called a Gideon. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're like a like a men's Christian business group, and they, they raise funds to basically give out Bibles. And sometimes if you ever go to a hotel, and you like, you look in the drawer of the hotel, like there's like a free Bible. If you look inside, it's like, it'll have a stamp, the Gideons or whatever. And so there was a Gideon, uh, this man, he was just by himself handing out Bibles, and I thought... Sure, why not? I'll I'll take a Bible. And I took this Gideon's Bible, this this orange covered New Testament, and I had never really read the Bible before. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead and, and give it a try. Now, somewhere about my twelfth grade year I had tried to read the Bible before, and usually I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get into this thing. I'm gonna read the Bible and then like I would read it for a little bit and like, eh, that's boring put that away like it was it was almost like a block there was almost like something that was like keeping me from understanding keeping me from knowing and so I kind of just kept on going that year later that year still in high school I was invited to a bible study after after school and I went really for one reason because there was like this group of Christians that were like offering free pizza and I was like oh free pizza I'm going to be there. And and my friends were and I talked. We're like, yeah, they have like a really awkward Bible study at first. But once you get through that part, there's free pizza at the end. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go for the free pizza. Now, I don't really remember what was shared at that Bible study. But I remember there was an opportunity at the end where they asked us to like close our eyes and like raise our hands. And I felt like really uncomfortable because there were some things I remember the guy saying that kind of made me feel weird. And I remember, okay, this is kind of awkward because I've never really been asked to do anything where I have to, like, make a decision. Like, I've gone to church and, like, okay, we stand up at this point or we sit down at this point or we say this. But, like, it was never, like, okay, I am choosing something right now. And so they did the whole close your eyes and if something, something, raise your hand. And I didn't really know. So you weren't supposed to peek, but guess what I did? I peeked. I was like, oh, my gosh, that guy's raising his hand? That why is that guy raising his hand? I was like, I think I should probably raise my hand. So I just like raised my hand and I didn't really honestly understand like why, but I did. And I got the free pizza at the end of that Bible study. So after that, like, you know, nothing really changed, honestly. You know, I went to this thing, I raised my hand and nothing really changed. But as I went on to college, you know, I still have that same, of all the things I decided, I moved from El Paso to Austin, and, like, my mom told me I can take two bags of stuff, you know, because I'm going going away, I'm going a long way, and for whatever reason, one of the things I put in those two bags of stuff was that that New Testament, and I, I don't really know why, because I definitely wasn't a Christian, like, I think back now, like, actually, <laughs> I flew in my dorm room a, a flag of the Soviet Union, I had a Soviet Union flag in my dorm room, like... And, like, the other book I packed with me was, like, The Communist Manifesto. Like, like I used to, like, really be into that. And, like, when I went to college, I went to, like, socialist meetings and stuff like that. I don't know why I picked the Bible, but I did. And the more I read the Bible, there's something that happened to me I can't explain. I kept wanting to read this book. Like, I could not explain to you why. Like, I would start highlighting in it and reading it, and I didn't understand it. But it was something I cannot explain. There was a time I had tried reading the Bible, and I stopped. I couldn't get it. There was something that was happening. I couldn't stop reading the Bible. And I wish I could tell you that someone came to me and told me the gospel. I wish I could tell you that, oh, I had a friend who asked me if I knew. No one ever did. But somewhere either in the fall of 1996 or the spring of 97, I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I, I said, you are the one who will make sure I'm never going to feel alone again. You are the one who's going to be really the answer. It's not going to be communism or, like, the Soviet Union or 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 going to bars. It's really going to be you. I mean, I read the life of this man, Jesus, and I never read anyone's life like this man before. I mean, this was a man who knew what it felt like to be, like, abandoned. This was a man who knew what it felt like to be in a garden all alone and and wanting to count on your friends to be there and be by your side. And, and his friends were, like, actually asleep when he he needed them the most. And so Jesus knew what it felt like to be alone, and he was someone I could identify with. And one of the cool things about the Bible is, like, you know, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God, he, like, makes everything, right? He, like, makes animals and, and, and plants. He makes Adam— And the first thing that that God says is not good, he says, he sees Adam is there in the garden and he doesn't have like a partner. And the first thing that God sees that's not good, he says, man, it's not good that man is alone. And God even knew that about me, that it wasn't good that I was alone because I could have people around me and, and friends around me. But apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, I was still really spiritually alone and that's why he sent, like, this businessman to my high school to pass out Bibles. I don't know who that guy was. I know I'm going to see him in heaven, and I think that's going to be a really sweet time. It's like, you know what? You're the one. Your faithfulness to pass out a Bible, it, 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 it was like you were there at that right time. And it wasn't, like, instant, but that process began when I trusted Jesus Christ, when I realized it wasn't Any of the good things I could do, because there wasn't a whole bunch. It wasn't like my religious service, because again, it was spotty at best. It was only because what Jesus Christ did, that he came to this world, that he lived the life I could never live. He died on the cross to pay for all those messed up things that I did. Even the things I thought I had done a really good job hiding from other people, I could never hide those from God. And Jesus Christ, he's the one who actually, he solved my ultimate loneliness problem. You know, because now I know that I'm not alone. I know that I have a Savior. I know that he has, he has come into my life in a way that is real. And listen, I have no natural explanation for what happened in my life. You know, sometimes people open up the Bible and they have a hard time believing the Bible. And they say, well, how can you believe God did this? You know, is it really likely that God did that? And I can tell you, it's not really likely God changed my life. It is not really likely that who I am today is the person that I am. I can't explain what happened apart from that miracles are real and they're happening right now. And, and that's just the part of my testimony. And that's actually what we see all throughout the Bible is is testimonies similar to what I'm telling you right now. This is what happens all the time. You know, Paul the Apostle, when he's describing these types of, of stories of salvation and change, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But listen to what the Bible says. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And what a wonderful thing is like. God's not looking for the best and the brightest necessarily. Uh, God is just looking for people who realize that that they have a loneliness problem, they have a sin problem, they have a separation from God problem. He is searching for those people, and he makes salvation as easy as possible. All you have to do is actually just agree with the creator of the universe and say, I, I need your solution to my very real problem. And it's not like, you know, I'm saved today, and like, okay, I can't wait My life will begin when I die. That's when heaven begins. That's when things get good. Listen, I have a Savior for today, right now. Like, I am saved, and I'm going to heaven. That's like, my future is settled. My future is done. I'm going to go to heaven, not because I'm a good person, but because Jesus Christ is my Savior. That's why I'm going to go to heaven. But let me tell you also, my testimony is that Jesus is real and alive and wants to work in your life right now. And I'm going to tell you, Marriage is too hard to do apart without Jesus Christ. Raising children, too hard to do without Jesus Christ. Dealing with the world that we live in, I could not do it. I am not strong enough to live every morning without Jesus Christ. And you know what the good news is? I don't have to. And the good news is, you don't have to either. There's really maybe two groups of us in this room this morning. There's those of us who have trusted Christ, and we need to continually trust in him for continual encouragement, for more strength and more power, because it never stops. It's never like, okay, well, I'm saved, and are like, oh, I've filled up, and I'm never going to have to be filled up ever again. I mean, if you have a car, you fill it up, that, that tank once, but you know what? You drive throughout this world, you have to refill that tank. You know what? You're saved, you get filled up, but you know what? We have to continue to be filled up and strengthened again and again and again, and God is willing to supply what we do not have. But there's also another group of us, perhaps, in this room, because I don't know everyone in this room. And those are people that maybe you were like me. You went to church from time to time. You attended a Bible study. You may have actually even raised your hand at an event without fully understanding why. Well, if you're in that category and you were like me, you felt alone. You're in that category and you were like me. You tried to solve your alone problems with maybe, like, religion or, like, politics or or, you know, sinful behavior, the thing about politics and sinful behavior and all those things, they don't really solve your loneliness problem. They don't fix your sin problem. But the good news is that Jesus does. And the good news is, is like, we can actually get that cleared up for you today. You know, I told you, I think maybe a sad part of my testimony, there was not a single person that ever clearly came and gave me a gospel presentation like I wish I could say oh yeah this person they clearly now there was people that did for sure push me and encourage me to read the bible that is true but no one ever like really sat me down and said this is what the gospel is listen this is what the gospel is you and I we're sinners we're imperfect you and I we deserve to be punished right? I mean, we know that. It's like instinctive that if you're guilty, you deserve some sort of punishment. But the cool thing is the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ, he died for us. He didn't wait for me to clean up my act. He didn't wait for me to stop being that, that person I was, that he died on the cross while I was still a sinner. Christ died for us. And then something amazing happened. You know what happened? They, they put Jesus on the cross, and three days later, you know what happened to Jesus? The Bible says he rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, I know two things about Jesus. I know that this man, this Jesus, is more than a man. He's God. Because who else has the power to conquer sin and death? And if this person is God, I think I can trust him in ways I can trust more, uh, trust in him more than any other person who's ever come. I can trust him with my marriage, with my life, most importantly, with my salvation. And the last question really is, how do I get salvation? Because if you would have asked me growing up, I would have said, being a good person? You know, if you would have asked me growing up, I would say, well, my good deeds probably outweigh my bad deeds. If you asked me growing up, I was like, well, I was baptized. You know, and you've probably heard these things. I've talked to people about this question all the time. If you died today and God said, why should I let you in, what would you say? I don't know what I would say. Um, Some people would say. Uh, I've been baptized. I've been good. God knows my heart. Well, I think Pastor Matthew went over a verse that says, yeah, God knows our heart. And that's part of the problem, you know, (laughs) like God knows our heart and like we're good sometimes, but you know what else? What we are sometimes we're bad. Sometimes we do the right thing, but sometimes we do the right thing for the wrong reason. And so the Bible says it's not about any of those things. It says that we're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not by works, so no one could boast. And for me, one of the most amazing things about Christianity is that of all the religions that have ever been, of all the teachers who have ever taught, there's only one person in all of human history that says salvation is a free gift, and all you have to do is trust the one offering you the gift. That is amazing. You would think of all the hundreds of religions that, you know, maybe there'd be at least one other religion that says heaven is free. Maybe there'd be like one other religious teacher who said it's a free gift. But I promise you, you cannot study, you cannot find any other religion, any other way that says salvation is a free gift and all you have to do is trust the one giving it. I trusted the one who gave that free gift. And again, I wish I could tell you it was August 1st. I don't know, but I do know in the year 1996, the year 1997, my life changed, and it's never been the same. And so that's, that's just part of my testimony. I and mean, there's other details and other things, and, and, and that's something that we might hear in the future someday. But that's the most important thing I wanted to share with you, that that is the God who is real. That is the God who is working. And there's people that you know maybe are like me. You might have gone to a Bible study with someone and said, well, I think that guy raised his hand once. I'm sure he's fine. Follow up with that person. Because if someone would have followed up with me, they would have learned that I just raised my hand and I didn't know why. There might be someone that you know who's like me who struggles with loneliness, and I'm going to struggle quietly with it. And no one really checked in on me. Check in on those people that you know. Maybe you know someone like me that they're raised in a religious home, and you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's like the worst kid ever. But if they're separated from God because they don't have a relationship, there is a major issue there. Check in with them. And maybe it's possible you in this room are like me, grew up religious, grew up going to church, but didn't know exactly what was going to happen when you died. Well, the great thing is, as we get ready to close, we can actually take care of that right now, that this time we can close our eyes, but instead of you not knowing why you're closing your eyes you can know that we're going to actually just pray. And and if you have never trusted Christ, if you've never made that decision, if you didn't know for sure where you're going to go when you die, you can settle that right now. Because what we'll do in just a minute is we'll pray. And we'll just thank God for this time. We'll thank God for 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 saving people, saving people like me. And if you've never felt sure that you knew what was going to happen to you when you die— Right now, as the Holy Spirit is here, the Holy Spirit's real, the Bible says it's like a sword so sharp and so real, you're feeling something that you haven't really felt or understood before, you can respond by simply saying yes, by saying, you know what, I trust in you, that, that, that I want you to save me, I want you to wash me clean, I want the books that have all those deeds that are terrible, I want those books thrown away, and I want my name instead to be written in the book of life. That's a miracle. And that's what God is ready and available to do for you today. And so I hope that my testimony has encouraged you in some small way. I hope my testimony has encouraged you to think about those who you know, who you may have just made assumptions about and forgotten about. But, but that, is, that is my story. And I want to actually have Pastor Matthew come up, and he's going to give you that opportunity to, to respond, you know, in the same way that I responded in faith Pastor Matthew's going to come up, and he's going to close us with a word of prayer. As he does that, don't miss this opportunity. If it's an opportunity God's calling you to, to recommit to him, recommit this morning. If he's calling you for the first time to trust in him, trust in him this morning. That's my testimony, and I'd love to hear yours as well. Thank you all so much.